I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. There is news today about a possible coronavirus treatment. Clinical trials are getting underway at the pharmaceutical company Regeneron, which created an antibody drug cocktail. It's similar to convalescent plasma, except instead of harvesting antibodies from someone who has recovered from the virus, Regeneron created the antibodies in a lab. Regeneron's chief scientific officer, George Yankopoulos, is with us. So as I understand it, you're testing this cocktail of antibodies twice to see whether it could prevent COVID-19 and whether it could treat people who are already sick. Well, what our antibody cocktail is, it's what's called a passive vaccine, but also a treatment. It can instantaneously provide this sort of protection that a vaccine can do. It's just that unlike a vaccine, which could be permanent for life, you have to keep getting treated with this to provide ongoing prevention. But moreover, more so than a vaccine, a vaccine doesn't help you if you're already sick. Our antibody cocktail can be a treatment. That is, if you're already sick and your body is trying to fight the virus, these antibodies can come in that we inject and they can essentially block and kill the virus and help you recover. So our cocktail is going into four different kinds of trials, both for the prevention in people who are not infected, but also to treat people who are already infected, both at the early stages of infection uh, and at the late stages. So what we would predict is that our antibody cocktail could work best to prevent, just like a vaccine, um, except you have to keep giving it. If you're early in the infection, that is, you're not yet hospitalized, you're not on a ventilator, it can hopefully reverse the disease and keep it from progressing and eliminate the virus from your body so you never become hospitalized. And we're also doing trials in the hospitalized patients. Hopefully, for those people, if you're already sick, you already have a lot of virus in you, we can help control the virus and make you better. While it uses antibodies, you've created the antibodies in a lab. These, this is not convalescent plasma taken from an infected person. Yeah, so over the last couple of decades, actually, we've developed the technologies to essentially make the best of antibodies that either a human being would create in response to fighting the virus themselves or in response to a vaccine. And so basically, we've developed technology that allow us to make these antibodies outside of the body, the best of these antibodies, grow them up in these large um, bioreactors, purify them in very concentrated form, and give them back to patients. It's as if these patients have been vaccinated instantaneously, but with the best of um, the antibodies that you could get from a vaccine. But the other important discovery that we made, and this is really shouldn't be a surprise because this is the history using more traditional antiviral drugs, is that a lot of the times these drugs, when given one at a time, when they attack one spot in the virus, traditional antiviral drugs can lead to mutant escape. Uh, That was the history with HIV until they realized that they had to put multiple drugs together that hit the virus in different spots to create a cocktail And that not only treated the virus initially, but kept them from escaping. With this cocktail, with a collection of antibodies that hit the virus at different points, you not only treat effectively, but you prevent this escape. George Ankopoulos at Regeneron. A treatment or a preventive could certainly generate the kind of confidence needed to boost the economy. Reopenings are underway, but another 1.5 million people filed new claims for unemployment. 
Chris Rupke, the chief economist at MUFG New York, is with us. How do those things square? All the restart, all the reopening, and yet an astonishing number of unemployment filings. It's an amazing figure. Uh, I can't really account for it. It's much too high. 1.5 million people, new people around the country, applied in the June 6 week for benefits because they'd been fired. So something's clearly still wrong. I mean, to put it in perspective, the worst point of the Great Recession in uh, 2007 through 2009 The worst one week for filings for initial unemployment claims was 665,000. So we're still over double, you know, two and a half times the worst level from that recession, which we thought was the worst since the Great Depression. Times are still not very good right now if you're trying to get a job. Any idea what accounts for that? I think what happens is as time goes on and businesses experience sharply reduced sales, they find that they simply cannot hang on to the same number of workers. And so this kind of cascades through industries, through different businesses, everyone at these companies and management starts to adjust the headcount just slightly. And it's slight enough to cause 1.5 million with uh, job losses. Now, one of the interesting things is it should still happen is that many people who are receiving unemployment right now, which are 18.9 million, that number will come down. So the 18.9 million will come down. And even if initial is going up, other people will be getting jobs. So the total pool of joblessness out there will start to come down gradually. I saw the Fed say that even by the end of the year, the unemployment rate would remain above 9%. This is just going to take an awfully long time? Well, that's been the history. Uh, Job uh, losses uh, have not turned into employment gains, except very, very gradually over all these recessions. So the Federal Open Market Committee, they do their forecasts and, you know, you have to wonder what forecasts are are worth at this stage. Things are so unpredictable right now. But uh, they're actually looking for even better unemployment uh, falling down, I think, six or seven percent a year after that. So this if that occurs, the forecast that the Federal Open Market Committee has right now for unemployment rate declining the next couple of years, uh, that would be the fastest on record. So you might ask yourself, is that possible? And that's a million dollar question here. I was going to ask you if that's possible. It seems rather unlikely, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's kind of like Humpty Dumpty on the wall, fell off, had a great fall. And, uh, you know, no one in Washington can put him back together again. It, it's probably going to be difficult due to social distancing out there that remains, a lot of these jobs are not coming back. There could be permanent alterations in the number of people employed at the shops and malls, at bars and restaurants, hotels, motels. It's a bit of a mess. I I think it's going to be an extended period of joblessness out there, unfortunately. Chris Rupke at MUFG New York. Idaho announced today the state has reached the final stage of its reopening plan, meaning sports venues and nightclubs can operate and visits to senior centers can resume. 
Physical distancing is still required, but workplace staffing restrictions have been lifted in Idaho. On Saturday, 100% of businesses will be able to open their doors as we enter Stage 4 of our Idaho Rebounds Plan. Governor Brad Little made the announcement today, and it came with a warning. We almost did not make it to Stage 4 this week. Despite our incredible progress, there are still some in Idaho who are not practicing measures to keep themselves and others safe. Even if contracting COVID-19 is low on your personal concerns, I urge you to practice safe measures to protect others. Community spread is occurring in more than half of the counties in our state. That is Idaho Governor Little. We know hospitalizations from coronavirus are increasing in eight states and cases are going up in 21 states. In Nashville today, the mayor, John Cooper, delayed moving to the next phase of the city's reopening because of a slight increase in cases. The majority of our public health metrics are satisfactory, but case numbers both here and across the state are slightly elevated prompting us to stay today in phase two for our roadmap for reopening Nashville. The level of cases in southeast Nashville warrants further attention, and I've instructed the public health department to concentrate its efforts in a more focused response in these neighborhoods. So we will continue, hopefully just a little bit longer, with phase two, while carefully observing our public health data every day. Nashville Mayor John Cooper will have much more on the spread of coronavirus coming up with our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. With me now is our Dr. Jen Ashton. And Jen, a lot of the country, as we know, in various stages of reopening, some cases rising in some states, but many question whether or not these are actual increases in cases or just increased testing, then begs the question, the accuracy of some of the tests that we're seeing. What do we know at this point? You know, Amy, we've heard a lot initially and up until this point about will there be enough tests. We've heard less about how accurate these tests are. So at this point, we have to look at something really important called false negatives of these tests. Um, We're talking about the nasal swab test right now. Almost any test can have a false negative um, result. And in the world of science and epidemiology, that refers to what's called the sensitivity of that test. That's the percentage of positive results you would see when someone is truly sick. Now, false negatives, high stakes, because if someone who's actually infected gets a test result back, that's a false negative. They can then go out and potentially infect and expose others. And right now, there's very limited evidence about the accuracy of these PCR nasal swab tests for COVID-19. And so many of these tests, as you know, being fast-tracked by the FDA with emergency use authorization, uh, the accuracy, of course, could be an issue. So what do we think we know about false negatives and COVID-19? Well, again, and I've been in touch with Dr. Stephen Hahn, the head of the FDA. And even he says, you know, with any test in medicine, we have to interpret the results with caution. In terms of false negatives, there's one review in preprint, hasn't been released yet, showing false negative rates anywhere from two to 29 percent for the PCR nasal swab. That means, of course, that the sensitivity of this test um, can be estimated to be around 70 percent. So that means a 30 percent potentially false negative rate. You can assume that a negative result 
is a false negative if someone has classic symptoms, symptoms wow. and signs of COVID-19 and known exposure. So that's what clinicians are dealing with right now. And a lot of officials want to be able to use this testing to help in the reopening process. So what do we still need to learn? And that will be so important. So here's what we don't know about testing at this point. Um, we don't really know what the false negative rate is of the SARS-CoV test in asymptomatic people. And so many asymptomatic people want to get tested. So we need to know that number. And the sensitivity hasn't been reported for any commercial test for use in asymptomatic people. That's as of June 1st. So uh, there is still a lot of work to be done on this issue. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you. We are going to turn now to Chattanooga, Tennessee, whose mayor just this week signed President Obama's mayor's pledge, a promise to review local police use of force policies. And here to talk about what's happening there on the front lines of his city is Mayor Andy Burke. Mayor Burke, thanks so much for being with us. And we should point out, even before you signed this four-part pledge to review, engage, report, and reform policing policy, Chattanooga Police Force uh, had already implemented policies that called for including CPD's new duty to intervene. Tell us about the city's ongoing efforts to improve police accountability. Yeah, we're not new to this conversation. It's been important for us to collaborate with the community uh, for the last several years. And uh, one of our uh, tweets of our our police chief, David Roddy, went viral for him saying after George Floyd's unjust killing, if you don't disagree with this, then you need to turn in your badge. For us, this is about creating a culture where everybody feels safe. Why was it important for you to sign that mayor's pledge? Well, even though we have been doing virtually all of these policies before, we want to make sure that they are as tight as possible, that we're as advanced as we can be. But I also want people to know that we're listening to them, that we're hearing the conversation and that we want to be as good as we can be and have the trust of our community. Yeah. And speaking to that. 10 days of largely peaceful protests there in Chattanooga. And unlike other mayors, you decided against enacting a curfew for your city. Tell us why. And it certainly seems like it's been working. It has been working. And the reason is we want to create more positive interactions between the police department and our residents. If it's 11.01 after an 11 o'clock curfew and somebody's still out on the streets, then our police department is going to enforce that curfew that can quickly turn negative. And I don't want to see particularly the physical interaction that comes when people violate curfew. Because we've been able to do this peacefully, it's much better for us to let people have their say, to listen to them, and make sure that we all go on as a community together. Yeah, let's switch gears to Chattanooga's reopening. I understand the reopening timeline of your city was not up to you. You had a different plan. So what are you doing now, given this was not how you intended to reopen Chattanooga? You know, what I really believe is that we need to create a culture difference that allows us to have new expectations of what people are like when they're at work and when they go out. That includes wearing a mask, washing your hands and staying away from people. We we weren't able to create that culture. In fact, we reopened very quickly and our economy is almost 100 percent mm. back to where it was in terms of reopening. So we're having webinars. Uh, we're uh, using Facebook. We're doing everything that we can. But but despite all all that, our numbers have been rising quickly. All right. Well, we will certainly be wishing you the very best in all of your efforts. Chattanooga Mayor Burke, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you.
As coronavirus stay-at-home orders are lifted across the country in a phased reopening, public libraries are also preparing to open their doors. Public Library Association President Ramiro Salazar is here with what that will look like. Thanks for being here. We certainly appreciate it. And we all know public libraries, sadly, also had to shutter their doors because of this pandemic. We should point out that many of them have still been providing very valuable services to their communities. Tell us how. Thank you, Amy. Yes, the COVID-19 crisis forced practically all public libraries throughout the country to shutter their doors. However, uh, public libraries have risen to the, to the challenge and libraries pri- primarily turn to online programming as well as promoting access to digital content, digital libraries, for example, e-books, downloadable books, uh, digital magazines, music and movies are now being provided by public libraries. So libraries have to adapt fairly quickly uh, for libraries provided access to digital content. We needed to learn how to promote it and also expand our capacity to fulfill demand since the public could not access our public libraries to pick up physical materials, print materials. Right. And and I know so many people rely on public libraries for the Internet, for computer access. I have such fond memories of going with my mom in the summertime for reading and just to be there physically in the library. What are some of the biggest challenges you will face now as the country reopens? What safety measures are being put in place? Well, you mentioned uh, access to the Internet. So what this crisis has emphasized or has, has magnified is that we still have a digital divide that impacts communities that, are, that need that service the most, that are vulnerable from uh, many aspects. And so the challenge for public libraries is how do we continue to provide uh, access to high-speed internet? So most public libraries maintain their Wi-Fi signal on to be accessible from outside in the parking lots. We express to our users to practice social distancing and so on, but we invited them because we know having access to Wi-Fi and high-speed internet is critically important today in a 21st century environment. Uh, So those are some of the things that uh, libraries are doing. Some libraries deployed high hotspot through uh, vehicles to go to targeted communities to provide access to Wi-Fi. Yeah, providing access, providing resources to communities who need the most. We know that the public library system has been hit very hard by this pandemic. So how can the public help their local libraries get back on their feet? Well, as libraries are now gearing up to reopen, and we're doing it very carefully, uh, we ask our users to be patient with us because this is a new environment that we're working in. And so we may be tweaking the way we provide access to collections. And the other thing is that most libraries have support groups, either friends of the library or a library foundation. They can support those uh, entities, which then support public libraries. That is very good to know. Thank you for all that you're doing and in giving those important resources to the communities that are in need all across this country. Ramiro Salazar, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. And up next right here, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton is taking your coronavirus questions and then people sticking closer to home this summer, but still wanting to get away. We're going to talk with the CEO of Verbo on the new travel trends. Stay with us.
Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here with us. And some big news today, uh, the first ever double lung transplant in these COVID times. Yeah, really interesting and inspiring in terms of transplant surgery, medicine, and for this country. Uh, Northwestern University announced that they did the first double lung transplant in a young woman in her 20s for severe COVID-19. This patient had been supported on a, that machine called ECMO to help oxygenate her blood. Uh, her team felt that there were zero chances for her to recover enough to be removed off the ventilator in this ECMO machine. Uh, and she underwent a double lung transplant in the last you know, day. And um, we have to remember, double lung transplants, not that common. There are about less than 3,000 in the country done every year, usually for conditions like pulmonary fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, or COPD. It's a big operation. Obviously, people will need to be on immune suppressant medication uh, for life. Uh, they did retest this patient to make sure she was no longer actively testing positive for COVID before they went forward with the transplant. But obviously not for everyone, but some really inspiring um, news, at least in the world of medicine for severe COVID-19. I was taken aback listening to the surgeon talk about the condition of her lungs, saying they were the worst he had ever seen. It really was a, a shocking image just to show the damage to the entire lung field um, and the potential potential for how devastating and powerful this virus can be, again, in a woman in her 20s. So um, I found it some, a bright spot of inspiring. News. Right. It should serve as a warning. And yet at the same time, it's an inspiration that, right. that we have this technology available yeah. to us. And the message behind the message, just quickly, Amy, organ donation desperately, yes. desperately needed in this country. So sign up to be an organ donor. You can save multiple lives. Amazing. All right. Next question. Should I consider wearing protective eyewear in public? Again, we've started to talk about this. There haven't been any official guidelines or recommendations, but what has primed the pump for this is a meta-analysis or systematic review that appeared in Lancet. We talked about it last week, where they looked at the, the efficacy of distance, face masks, and eye protection. And they found that in terms of reducing the spread of COVID-19, people who wore some kind of eye protection lowered their risk from 16% to 6%, so we're talking about face shield, regular eyeglasses, or some kind of eye goggles. Again, they said the certainty of this evidence was low, but it would not surprise me that we're gonna be hearing more about this in the future. Okay, next question, it is nearly summer. Uh, can COVID-19 be transmitted via insects, like mosquitoes or ticks? Good news at this point is there's no evidence that this is a tick-borne virus. Something like Zika, West Nile, malaria, chikungunya, all known to be transmitted by mosquitoes not COVID-19. So worry about those other things, but not mosquitoes and COVID-19. We'll take it. One last right. thing to worry about. Exactly. <laughs> Next question. Is spraying the tennis balls with disinfectant necessary after each use, or will the sunlight be enough to kill the germs? Great question. And I would like to be playing more tennis myself this summer. Um, we don't know. Obviously, this hasn't formally been studied. There is a good likelihood that UV light, heat, sunlight will kill almost anything on the tennis balls. There's no harm in spraying them off after you're finished. Um, you know, we heard Dr. Deborah Burks recommend marking the balls with your initials so you're mm. only touching uh, your ball. I've been in contact with the head tennis pro at the Vintage Club in Indian Wells, and he's saying that for the most 
most part just the coaches are handling the tennis balls to try to reduce contact. So do the best you can, but get out there and get some exercise. Yeah. And wash your hands afterwards. Exactly. Right? There you go. All right, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Jen, thank you so much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, as we slowly venture back into the world after months of stay-at-home orders, people are exploring new ways to just get away. And as we all continue to conquer COVID, summer travel probably will look a lot different this year. So here to tell us more is the CEO of travel company Verbo, Jeff Hurst. And Jeff, thanks so much for being with us as we all navigate this new normal. Tell us what trends you're seeing and how people are choosing to travel now. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So the first trend we're seeing is that people are starting to book travel again. As soon as regulations and restrictions have eased, there's been a lot of pent up demand and families are enthusiastic to go save their summer. And what we're seeing is a few different trends from prior summers to this summer. First of all, people are booking closer in travel to their home. It's a lot more emphasis on drive to, typically within 250 miles of the city, at the expense of longer haul flights. And so fewer people are going to the islands, fewer people are going to Europe. And as they explore this drive to travel, we're also seeing slightly longer trips. We think some of this is because people are getting more comfortable with work from home and they might be willing to extend a weekend or even a week-long trip to do a little bit of work over video and be able to stay engaged in their profession. And a lot of it is also that many people, like my family, had to cancel their spring break. And so you're looking to make up for some lost time that you've had over the uh, quarantine period. And then finally, we're seeing a lot more emphasis on whole homes. And so Verbo has been a specialist in whole homes for almost 25 years. And people are really craving to be in a home, just not their home, and having a pool or private beach access or getting to the mountains and getting away and enjoying some space, but being together with family they may have been separated from. That's right. A change of scenery can do, can do us all some good now. Now, there are still people out there, of course, who are hesitant to travel during these times. So what is being done to ease their concerns and make them feel safer? Yeah, every situation is unique, and we encourage people to make their own decisions on what's in the best interest of their safety. What Verbo has done on this topic, we published guidelines that are a compilation of recommendations from World Health Organization, CDC, Cristal International Standards, to help our homeowners and uh, property managers know what the new set of expectations are. In general, vacation home ownership and rentals have been around for decades, and there's already and always been a high quality of care. So we're collecting this information from homeowners and we're making it available to travelers so they can choose and have dialogues on what's best around disinfecting and how they've thought about this in terms of things like new cancellation policies. And so we've introduced new flexibility for our homeowners to decide what cancellation policies they offer because we do see travelers wanting to make decisions either further in advance where they want that comfort or right around the corner where it's less of a big deal. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, Jeff, finally, for people who are considering what to do this summer, uh, do you have any just general suggestions for families who are trying to get away safely? Absolutely. I mean, per your prior guest, I think one of the thing is that, you know, for everybody, they should be dreaming about what they go do next and the mental health aspects of planning that trip and dreaming about where you're going to go. And given a lot of patterns have been disrupted, really dream about what you can do near home and what that drive to looks like. Now you start planning it, and Verbo has a tool called Trip Boards that helps you plan trips with loved ones who may not be in your household. So you can expand your quarantine crew a little bit and see those grandparents and let them see grandkids. And finally, I'd suggest people book now. We are seeing a lot of these uh, rural, mountain, lake, beach destinations book up as fast or faster than last year. And so if you're trying to save that summer vacation, I suggest people start to book today. Yep, I've got a couple trip boards on my Verbo account, Jeff. 
I had to admit that. <laughs> Thank you so much. We certainly appreciate it. Jeff Hurst, we appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Now, a helpful conversation for parents trying to figure out how to explain so many new and confusing things to our little ones as the world reopens again. Here is Sarah Haynes with clinical psychologist, Dr. Becky Kennedy. Dr. Becky, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'm a mom of three, and as the world kind of starts to reopen again, how do we explain this shift back to reopening and adjust back into the social play dates and the gatherings? Kind of how do I even start that with the kids? You know, the first step with anything about parenting is really always checking in with ourselves. One of the things we're coming into, Sarah, as parents is having to make decisions. To this, up to this point, we haven't had to make decisions. We've been frustrated being at home. We've been sad, we've been scared, but we haven't been in the driver's seat. And to be in the driver's seat and having to make decisions amidst continued uncertainty is inherently anxiety producing. Every single person with kids has to, in my opinion, be talking to their kids about this change. Because we've said to our kids, no, 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 not safe, not safe. It's not safe to go out. It's not safe to go out. And then we're going to say, go out. And as if they're going to be like, what? Like, what just happened? I think there's a story and then there's a preparation for feelings, which would say something like the coronavirus cold that was kind of jumping from person to person. We made so many of the germs go away. And now all the people can start leaving our homes. And some things will feel kind of weird and new. Let me know what you notice. I'll hug you extra tight when we notice all those new things. I also think saying to friends, you know, I know everyone is going to be making different decisions. I also know everyone is trying to make the decisions they feel like is best for their family. That's going to look different on the outside, but I think all of us are kind of going through the same thing on the inside. How do we um, kind of manage the natural expected anxiety with not projecting that or allowing them to pick up on it so much and continue to offer them a security and safety as parents? I'd like to. Kids seeing our feelings is never a problem. It's kids picking up on our feelings and us not talking directly to them about it because then they see mommy stressed and they wonder and they're not sure. Right. And when they perceive a change that is not explained by us, kids are more likely to interpret it as danger or as something they did that it's their fault. We don't want that. So I think this time we have to just prepare ourselves to say to our kids here and there, you saw mommy like, you know, you saw mommy and daddy talking in a, in a raised voice or you saw mommy struggling and talking with her phone about whether or not we're going to send you to camp. I wanted to talk to you about that because one, yes, you were right to have noticed that. Just to validate, you were right to have noticed that. And here's what's going on. And here's, I think, what kids need to hear also next to that that makes them feel that security. Mommy can still be your strong, capable mommy, even when I'm not so sure about certain decisions. I'm still going to make you dinner. I'm still going to put you to bed. You're still safe. Right. Just to to reassure that just because they've seen us upset doesn't mean we can't occupy that space. And I think that's such a gift to give to our kids. I hope my kids, when they become parents, have no illusions that, oh, I'm going to just I know what I'm doing. And my mom always knew what she was doing at every single moment. I mean, if that's what they go into parenting, I'm just setting them up to feel awful about themselves. Right. Right. That's that's really helpful for them to kind of have honest discussions about. So helpful. And our thanks to Sarah Haynes for that. 
All right, we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for final thoughts on this Thursday. Amy, today I really want to share with you a story that I think illustrates just how much COVID-19 has infiltrated my mind and, and every part of my world. And it's actually more a mom story than a doctor story. I was actually walking into my son's room uh, to leave something in there. He just graduated from college with a double major in math, computer science. So he has all his college books stacked up on his desk. And I glanced over and I saw one at the top that said, clean code. Now, I have no idea what that means in the world of computer programming, but I decided to pick it up, open it to a random page, and just see if I could make sense of one line. <laughs> and ironically, the line I opened to was entitled Clean Tests and Coding. This is a book by an author, Robert Martin, and it, it used the acronym FIRST. F stands for fast. Independent stands for one test shouldn't be dependent on another. R stands for repeatable. It should be repeatable in any environment. S stands for self-validating. So the test should be simple. It should either pass or fail. And the T stands for timely. So these tests should be accessible and you should give, get results in a timely manner. And I read this and I thought, I can actually understand this, which I was surprised <laughs> about. But then I immediately went to this is what the testing for COVID-19 really should follow. Um, and so I may or may not drop an anonymous note to the powers that be and say, you know what, follow a word, a page from the computer coding uh, book. But I thought that that was incredibly apt. So think of the acronym first. Okay, Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you as always. What started as a friendly baking competition between two friends has now shifted into a community-wide effort to lend a helping hand to essential workers already. Some 400 dozen cookies have been distributed through Cookies for Caregivers. And the two buddies who started it all, well, they're here with us now, Jeremy Ulrich and Scott McKenzie. Thank you so much for being with us. And Jeremy, first just tell us how this came about. It just started off with a, a, a simple post on Facebook by Scott um, sharing his his excitement for uh, baking chocolate chip cookies for the first time. <laughs> and I ironically had been baking chocolate chip cookies with my sons at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And I responded to him, uh, challenging him to a bake off. He accepted and, and being the competitors that the two of us are being coaches by trade. Um, he said he would love to to accept that challenge. And he said, but we need to do more. We need to Times are tough right now. Let's, let's bake cookies and let's uh, deliver them out to the frontline essential workers. And, and we both agreed. And we decided we were going to get somebody else to help us so we would have more cookies. So I reached out to a high school senior basketball player of mine, Rachel Kyle, wonderful individual, great person. And she was excited and she accepted. And um, we agreed to bake about two to three dozen cookies each. And we ended up uh, somehow down at the mayor's office, and he live streamed. He live streamed the judging on Facebook, and after chowing down and eating three very different chocolate chip cookies, um, Rachel uh, actually won, and it was good for her. We were really excited being a senior and losing a lot of things. That was exciting there, and then we ended up. Scott and I ended up delivering cookies to the police department, the fire department, a local grocery store, and the hospital, and just to simply say thank you. And it's more gratitude for, for what they're doing. You know, myself and Scott, my wife, many other people, we got to stay at home and work and be safe with our families. And we just wanted to show gratitude and thank them for what they're doing. And we knew that this could lead to something, um, but we never anticipated that it would spiral into 11 weeks of this and 400 plus uh, cookies that have been baked and, and delivered. Yeah, it's amazing. I love that. And you mentioned this. You all are personally delivering these cookies. So, Scott, tell me what the reaction has been like when you show up with those sweet treats. 
Well, Jeremy and I, we follow proper PPE, so we uh, we put masks on and we deliver our cookies. And um, masks, uh, it, it changes the way you communicate. And at least I have found that the eye contact when you wear a mask reveals so much more emotion. And when we're delivering these cookies, the eye contact and the emotion we see from the frontline workers is uh, is energizing and, and awe-inspiring. They're, they're, they're so happy to be recognized. They're so happy to be seen and appreciated. The amount of air hugs we've received is staggering. <laughs> the elbow fives. And it's just when somebody realizes you saw me, you appreciated me, and they didn't expect it, uh, that makes everybody feel good. Uh, well, you make us feel good. You inspire us. Scott and Jeremy, thank you so much for what you're doing and for being with us today to share it. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.